It was cold this year in Park City Tuesday. Ugh, wuss. <laughs> no, but really, there was like a decent cold front when right before we showed up. We, again, had the honor of attending Sundance Film Festival this year. Yeah, pretty much snow on the front end and snow on the back end. And it was just cold, but we missed the flurries, which I am grateful for. And somehow, High West Whiskey forgot to sponsor us again this Mm. year. Indeed. Maybe we didn't drink enough of it? Or maybe we need a good, hearty email to them. I mean, it wasn't like we didn't drink plenty while we were up there. (laughs) Seriously. Uh, Just kidding. We love you, High West. Um, So back to the film festival, we saw a handful of interesting, I think is the best way to describe it, films this year. Some we agreed on and some we didn't. And some we really didn't know what the hell was going on. She's Tuesday. I'm Kaylee. Slip on your toques and mittens and breathe the cold with us. This is Whiskey and Popcorn. So this review is going to be a little bit different. We're going to be doing a series of mini reviews of the films that we saw at Sundance 2020. Right. And because these films are so new, most, if not all, don't even have trailers out yet. So sadly, no clips, guys. Oh, man. I know. But we do have plenty to say about what we did see. So let's get started. Shall we? Our first film was called The 40-Year-Old Version. Not to be mistaken for the Steve Carell film, 40-Year-Old Virgin. (laughs) (laughs) Written, directed, and starring Rada Blank, this film is, as she describes it, her love letter to New York City. Shot in black and white, Blank plays a pretty much a fictional version of herself as this struggling playwright. She was very promising in her early career, winning a 30 Under 30 award, and was a playwright to watch. But as the big 4-0 approaches, she finds herself without any major production, stuck with small black community theaters, and teaching disenfranchised youth in Harlem. Struggling with what to do with herself, she decides to become... A rapper. Why not? <laughs> uh, she goes by the name of Rada M.U.S. Prime. I don't think I said it quite as cool as she did. This alter ego pits her against herself in many ways. She is really fighting against society and its push to really drive her into creating what she calls poverty porn, which she actually raps about. And it was quite delightful, actually. And she can't bit some slick rhymes, but again, she's really struggling with who she's truly meant to be. Is she this edgy, on the fringe, no bars held black woman spitting rhymes, or is she this sophisticated, educated, uh, classy, worldly playwright? And she's really battling it out, these two sides of her personality. I mean, she's clearly an artist. There's no doubt about it. And a talented one, but her desires are kind of just always out of reach. Whether that's catering to the white man to get her play introduced out into the world, 
or having to deal with her own gentrification of her world as she knows it. And uh, for me, the film was very meta. (laughs) Yeah. Because she was a student of uh, Sundance Film Festival, so they took her in to produce this film. And it's very much a story about her, which is written by her, directed by her, and stars her. And so you get a lot of realistic aspects of the film. And overall, I really liked it. But definitely there were meta times where I was like, oh, yeah, this is just us watching her story. And that's okay. Yeah. No, I I did enjoy it. I think for me, it was the funniest drama that we saw. Clearly enjoyable. I love this idea of doing the whole film in black and white, except for the very end where she kind of like resolves all these issues and comes to understand who she is, not only as an artist, but as now a 40-year-old woman or woman entering her 40s. And like the color just seeps in at the very end of the film, which I thought was a very nice artistic touch there. You know, this film, it has that youthful, uh, novice touch to it. So it's not like we're having really interesting framing uh, or you know, angles, like it's a very straightforward film, but the story carries itself well enough and it's shot well enough to where I was really able to follow along and enjoy the progression of her story. And, you know, it's interesting too, because like she comes from two artists. Her father was like a jazz drummer. Her mother was a visual artist and among many other things. Um, And we actually get to see that artwork in color which is also just a whole nother thing that we won't dive into here, <laughs> the the uh, the meta-ness of it all. But I say that this is a worthwhile film. It was interesting and a nice way to open up our festival experience with a film by a woman of color about being a woman of color in the art world, Love Letter to New York. Yeah, beautifully done. Just enough humor, just enough seriousness, just enough of the black female story to really be able to dive in to her experience. And Netflix snapped this one up so you'll be able to stream it here in the near future. Add it to your favorites list. Again, that is the 40-year-old version by Rada Black. So for this next film called Boys State, I really went in with some preconceived notions about the documentary. It's directed by Jesse Moss, and Amanda McBain, it follows a thousand teen boys as they create a government from the ground up. For some background here, since 1939, the American Legion has hosted an annual nationwide leadership academy for teen boys to basically conduct a political simulation. There are chapters in every state. They are given nothing but a two-party system with no platform or politicians. They elect leadership, form a party platform, and eventually elect a party candidate for governor to battle it out with the opposing party. And again, this occurs in every state. But with our documentary, we follow the 2018 Texas Boy State Academy. Oh, but there's more. We follow our Texas teens as some of them run for office, 
Some set up mock news organizations. Others become campaign managers. They play sports in between. They join the Boy State Band. There's a parade where they carry around their party flag. And some even perform in the talent show. It's almost like camp. It was very much like camp. And, you know, it's really interesting how each of these 1,000 young men really fall into where they're meant to be. Like their personalities shine through as well as their ideologies. You know, if you are a leader, it comes out, even if you're a quiet leader. And not all 1,000 of these kids can run for office. So again, some are just followers, some are the leaders. But what were these preconceived notions of yours, Tuesday? Tell me more about this. Well, it it's Texas. Um, <laughs> Texas kind of has its own state of mind. I mean, my family thinks Texas might as well be a different country. Uh, I assumed that this documentary would show how conservative states like Texas basically form this political simulation to pump out little Jimmy Carters or George Bushes. <laughs> they a way to keep the Republican Party with a new generation that will do what they're told, when they're told, and be molded into exactly what they want. And I was thinking that, too. I was like, this is a little GOP manufacturing uh, organization. But it really did challenge me to step back and see what this program is about. It really is supposed to be teaching these young people in this, this case, these Texan boys, how government works in their state, but also on the big scale of the whole country. And it, it brings to light, does a two-party system really work or should there be more parties? Uh, how do you build a platform? And are you going to go the route of being that swarmy, nasty, wily political spinner? Or are you going to stick to your guns here, pun intended, and stand for what you think is right. And I also thought it was very illuminating how we got to see see people change. One of the, the boys they follow is a young Latino, and his mother was undocumented. Later on, she got her citizenship, so now she is legal. But uh, he has multiple siblings. He's the first one, he said, who will graduate from high school and sound like he was on his way to do college. He was politically curious, I guess you could say. And he went in. He's very quiet, very unassuming, and looked very out of place amid all these mostly predominantly white, rich boys. And yet he would sit down and he would talk with them and listen with such an openness and such you know, inoffensiveness that he was able to really hear where people are coming from on things like abortion or gun rights and get to the root. Like, is this something they believed or is this something that they were taught to believe? And what do you actually think? And that caught him quite far in the races uh, for governor, quite honestly. Yeah. And it and I think he went in with the same notions we did about, oh, it's just going to be some rich white guy that wins. And and as we said, he gets through quite a bit. And with that, we see a lot of growth across the entire platform of some who just went with, you know, a candidate who went with what they thought everyone thought. And those like our young Latino who actually sat down and listened to them and they said, well, you know, maybe you're right. Maybe 
it's not okay for people to own Uzis and, you know, crazy machine guns. And so as much as a lot of them continued to cater to the way the political system is today, there was also this situation where when we really all just sit down face to face and have a conversation, it's no longer us screaming at each other on Facebook, but really getting down to the issues and finding common ground. Mm Mm-hmm which was really refreshing to see. Yes. But on the same note, yes, we have we had some gems of quotes that <laughs> that really <laughs> tighten the entire story together about, oh, well, you know, I don't believe that politicians should lie, but I totally understand now why they do. And you're no. like, "What?" So, uh, yes. yeah. Um so don't don't go in thinking that it's a very right-wing. I mean, I think the documentarians did a very good job of being as unbiased as possible and just being observers within the simulation. Exactly. And they did follow a couple people of color, which they were few and far between, but also some other very interesting boys. One of them, you know, was disabled and was determined to not use that as any sort of crutch. It's up to you to decide if he actually did get some mileage out of that or not. But... This film gave me a small glimpse of hope that if everybody could just stop screaming at each other and learn how to talk to each other without becoming defensive, that progress can be made. And that's what I think this country really needs is to come back to the table and let's all talk it out. And where can we try and meet in the middle once again? But very interesting film. This one got picked up as the best documentary out of the film festival. So you'll be seeing this one coming out in theaters at some point this year. So watch out for Boys State. So next, another documentary, Saudi Runaway. It follows Muna, a 20-something-year-old Saudi woman, as she prepares to escape from her abusive father, forced marriage, and the repressive Saudi state. The entire film is shot secretly from her cell phone, and it really chronicles her daily life and the struggles that she goes through coming to terms that she is going to run away from her family. While she cannot stand having the men in her life that make decisions for her, she also dearly loves her mother, sister, and younger brother. It breaks her heart to hide the truth from them. German documentarian Suzanne Virginia Mures was turned on to the subject of Saudi women running away from their country after hearing several stories about this. And she says that there are about a thousand women who escape Saudi Arabia every year. And Suzanne got in touch with this Saudi activist who's based in Europe and runs this closed blog and chat group that is basically for interested runaways and helps them find ways to escape their situation. And after connecting with him, he introduced Suzanne to the online community there and to the women, all digitally, obviously. Um, And she basically put out the call for a brave woman to film her story of escaping. And she found one. Actually, she had dozens and dozens of women connect with her. And in that mix, she found Muna. And this was a very fast turnaround on the film. Yeah. So she met Muna, and they, and she was in the midst of maybe less than two months away from Muna's 
marriage and wedding and honeymoon, which is where she planned to escape. So when we talked with Regina about the movie, she said she had a quick turnaround on how fast she had to basically teach Muna how to direct herself with a cell phone Mm -hmm. and turn around. Of course, this was incredibly dangerous for Muna because if she was ever caught, even if it was uploading the videos, recording the videos, anything of that manner, she could be punished indefinitely. And so just the the aspects of being able to upload the videos to get them to Regina. Susanna. Sorry, get them to Susanna and have Susanna acquire them so that Muna could secretly delete all of them and delete them off their phone before the dad could see them because the dad monitored her credit card, her cell phone, her computer, everything. And when we talk about secretly, there's a lot of footage where we are watching the film under Muna's burqa. Yeah. So we actually have a thin black veil over some of the filming because that is how secretive she had to be. So this was, I there were times I cringed, scared that Muna was going to get caught at any minute. Exactly. Like she's in her room, the door's closed, but then like her little brother comes in and he, he's like, what are you doing? Taking selfies. She's like, yeah. Instances like that. Or she's in the bathroom, you know, and she's just silently weeping. It was such a, a roller coaster of emotions. In, in many ways, this was very suspenseful and almost thriller-like, but it was grounded in humanity because this is actually happening to her. And we're watching her feel these emotions of guilt and concern because, like you said, you, she loves her family, um, even though her father seems was a very terrible person, beat their little son who couldn't have been more than, like, eight years old. He's got welts on his back, so was not a good situation at all. And even with the man she married, he wasn't a terrible person. So she felt grief over causing him pain, but she just couldn't, she couldn't stay. And, you know, it was just watching this act of bravery. It was so intimate and very unlike anything I've ever seen. Like, you know, I'm used to the interview style with footage in between documentaries, very much like, you know, Boys State uh, is a perfect example of that traditional documentary style. But this, we were living through it with her, and it was just incredible and thrilling. It gave me goosebumps. Oh, it, it, if, if you wanted a hands-on experience, this is the film. It really... You know, as a feminist, I think I take for granted some of the freedoms we do have in the U.S. And realizing, again, how little Saudi women have. You know, Muna talked about she couldn't leave the house by herself. She couldn't drive a car. Uh, She had to be escorted everywhere she went with a male. And I can't even fathom that in my life. Me neither. And it just it gives you a really nice appreciation of the freedoms we do have and how incredibly difficult it is for these women to even get close to escaping. Her only the her only chance was when her and her husband went on the honeymoon because it was no longer in Saudi Arabia. And she was waiting for him to fall asleep like he didn't go to sleep until like four or five a.m. And she just had like barely two hours to get to the airport because she was waiting for him to, to go to sleep. 
it was just oh my gosh this film was amazing and as of right now is going on the festival circuit so yet to be picked up but hopefully somebody like Amazon or Netflix or Hulu will pick this one up because it is amazing and I really think more people should see this is my pick for best documentary out of the festival yeah if I had a choice one of them would have already picked this up Mm. because it was so beautifully done All right, next to our first WTF film of the bunch. The Mountains Are a Dream That Called to Me. Now, this film is rather difficult to describe. I thought we were walking into another documentary, to be quite honest with you, Tuz. I wasn't quite sure what we were walking into. We had a lot of trouble this particular morning with getting into some films, so... I was just happy to be sitting in something, but I definitely wasn't expecting this. (laughs) Let me just read the synopsis. The Annapurna Mountains in Nepal set the stage for the quiet intersection of two travelers heading in different directions. Tukten, a young Nepali man, is on his way to Dubai for new opportunities when he meets Hannah, an elderly Australian woman trekking on her own. Their encounter ends up being this momentary interruption they both didn't know they needed. Sounds promising, right? Totally. I mean, <laughs> we were like, cool, this will be like a really interesting drama, maybe deep. I, I mean, I, I, I thought it was just going to be a little bit interesting. I was like, oh, set in Nepal, it's probably going to be really pretty. Um, you know, that cross-cultural intersection. And, um, hmm, well, Tuesday. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Why don't cool. you sum it up for us? So, we are working with about a paragraph, maybe a paragraph and a half of dialogue. The entire film. So, you know how some people will put really beautiful landscapes as their screensaver on their computer to think of more beautiful times or places they wish they were, but instead they're stuck with their cubicle. This director would be an amazing person to make screensavers. (laughs) And by that, I mean, there was a lot of filming that was landscape. This was also very much what I would call a walking film. We watched them walk a lot. Just to give you an idea, I fell asleep not once, but twice in this film. And both times I woke up, we were looking at the exact same screen as when I fell asleep. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I also struggled with staying awake. Uh, I didn't quite fall asleep like you did Tuesday, but I was definitely right on the edge. And, you know, I... You're right. It was very, very pretty. And the director, Cedric Chung Lao, he is basically a lighting guy, lighting director. He worked on things like Monsters and Men, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, and Patty Cakes, which we love that movie, Patty which Cakes. Which we love. That's why we were excited <laughs> for this one. But this film had no direction. It was incredibly boring. And it was almost like travel porn. You know, it it did feel like that there was some sort of, like, spiritual journey supposed to be happening here. But 
Speaking of spirits, there was also this creature that was following them around, and I wasn't sure if it was supposed to be a yeti or the spirit of the forest, and it was very indistinct. Depending on what environment you are, it was like completely blended in until it moved. So it was like a person, if it was in the jungle, a person wearing a bunch of jungle leaves. And you didn't know it was there until it actually moved. And the first time it happened, I'm like, did I imagine that? And I think that was probably intentional. I mean, as far as we know, it's some traditional, like, boogeyman of Nepal. But, like, we don't know. Like, it has nothing to do with the story. And we don't even know what really happens to our two characters. And, I mean, I'm not, I'm sure I promise you we are going to be the weird ones in this in these reviews and there's going to be a wonderful middle-aged white men who talk about how transformative it was for their life to watch this film. I don't get it. I think that this is the kind of film that people who haven't gone to Sundance think that we go up and watch. <laughs> it's nothing but these like what the hell did I just watch movies? But this was totally what this was. Now, in its defense, now, it was boring, it was way too long and pointless. I wasn't outright angry about it. Um, I was getting a hunger migraine, but otherwise I probably would have zonked out. Like, it was very just soothing. Now, don't get me wrong. I would love it if it was like a VR experience hmm. or if it was a situation where I wanted to be very meditative because that's how I felt. I felt very meditative through it. But what I wanted was a drama, and I wanted some character development. And I want, but if I knew I was going into a meditative universe with this film, maybe I would have been more prepared for it. Yeah, but that's how I felt. I just kind of felt sleepy and zenned out. Well, I also questioned because at a certain point, um, our Australian woman and the Nepalese guide, like. They're traveling together. She doesn't want him there. He doesn't know why he's following her. Like, he totally just flakes out on his friend in Dubai and, like, is not going to that job. I'm not sure I really want to spend the brain cells on figuring out why, but she, like, up and disappears, ups and leaves him. I'm not entirely sure what happened, but it almost made me think, like, is this a weird thing where she was, like, a spirit guiding him back to the mountains? And I'm not sure I'm comfortable with that for a lot of reasons, including that she's a white woman leading him back to the mountains. Like, I'm sure you can interpret it that way. Maybe that's okay. I don't know. Our director is of uh, got Asian background in him. I'm not sure if he's Asian American or Asian Australian or, or Asian British, but uh, it's, I don't know. I just, that part kind of made me feel icky. And I'm like, I'm not sure what you're trying to say here. But other than that, you know, I was pretty zenned out. And I paid attention to the lighting in this film, and it was very pretty. Very pretty. So maybe we could just leave it at that, but definitely not worth the two hours or so of your life to sit through. And again, we might be, this might be a situation very much like Roma, and everyone disagrees with us, and that's okay. But I know what I watched, and I know how I felt walking out of it. Well, you might feel a little vindicated here. I saw The Hollywood Reporter was not on board with this film. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> okay. All right. It, it, hopefully it won't be another Roma. But I'm just telling you, if this doesn't get picked up, I'm not going to be mad about it. <laughs> it probably won't. Okay. For a total change in character, 
Our next film had quite a bit of buzz before we even arrived at Sundance. Yes, Kitty Green's The Assistant may be the first drama to be released post the Me Too movement and is very timely. We follow Jane, played by Julia Gardner, a junior assistant to a prominent entertainment executive, and we follow her around for about 24 hours uh, in her day. Now, we never really see the face of the boss, but he is clearly modeled after Harvey Weinstein. She does all the grunt work, takes all the bad calls, does the babysitting, and watches as she's treated less than basically everyone else. And let's not forget the revolving door of beautiful women and models that come into her boss's office. There is nothing glamorous or rewarding about her job. Yet she's often reminded that any young aspiring film producer would kill to take her place. And as if to add insult to injury, when a very young woman is shipped from a small town and put up in a nice hotel to work for Jane's boss, she finally has the guts to go to HR and raise the red flag. And let's just say it does not go well. Quote, but don't worry, Jane, you're not his type. (laughs) Oh, it was so hard to watch, yet... I've, I, I'm never going to say it was as bad as Jane's situation, but I have definitely been on some, in, I've definitely worked some peon jobs mm-hmm. where, and we see that with Jane. She shows up from Astoria. She drives in closer to town to then take um, the train to then take, you know, other forms of transportation to get there in the dark. It's got to be like 4 a.m. Before everyone else, even the other assistants that are probably at least above her or have been there longer than she has. And we watch her eat when she can and then leave after everyone else has left for the day. And I've definitely been in those shoes. I've definitely been office secretaries, office assistants. And so I know how crappy it is. But... This one is so just a step above that. And, you know, the the grind that she goes through is very relatable. And it's just very ugh because of the Me Too movement. And I think will really resonate with any woman in particular that's been in these situations where you just bust your ass and you don't get recognition of any kind. But the moment you make a little screw up, you are basically towed beneath the boat. And... It's just horrible. That all being said, though, this film really started losing its pacing for me. This could have been summed up in probably 45 minutes, but it just went on and on and on to the point where we finally get to the end of the film and nothing is resolved. Looks like she's just going to go back home, sleep for a few hours and do it all over again. It had almost this, this very European film feeling where it's just like everything's left as is we didn't get anywhere and that just irritated me I wanted her to like flip her desk and shout and scream or go screw you HR now that would be completely out of character for her so I know they didn't do that for a reason but it just got a little bit boring and monotonous for me towards the end like the last 30 minutes is like okay Let's just wrap this up. 
Yeah, there's definitely, and I think it plays really well as a dichotomy. You know, there is this man who is so powerful, we don't even have to see his face to know the fear in everyone's eyes. And he rolls in at 10 in the morning and he has some meetings. Then he goes to a hotel and sleeps with hot women and, you know, at some point gets some work done. And then we have Jane and we're watching her in all these monotonous, tedious tasks, which do get exhaustive at some point. Like, yes, we get it. Like, your job sucks. But it it's that, I think, that powerful dichotomy that they were really trying to punch you in the face with, which, again, it didn't need to be that crazy. But I, overall, I think the message was extremely powerful. And it definitely resonated with me. Luckily, I haven't been in a situation that's enough to acquire a hashtag, but I definitely know colleagues and friends that have. Mm-hmm. And it it's hard to watch. And I think probably because I have had a boss like this, one particular aspect of her job is talking with his wife or dealing with difficult situations the other assistants don't want to. And in turn, he will call up and scream at her. And in turn, she has to turn around and send an apology email, which he usually responds with, I'm just hard on you because I believe in you. Mm -hmm. Or I understand you'll do better next time because people said you were smart and that's why we hired you. And it's just everything is so condescending and icky. And I've definitely been in situations like that where I'm like, I'm so much smarter than this job. Yeah. But all in all, it, I understand where the buzz was coming from. Mm-hmm. And this was put out by Bleecker Street, which means that we'll probably be seeing it in theaters very soon. So I'll leave it up to you, audience, if you want to go see it. I was not dazzled by this film. Um, so I'm very much take it or leave it. Are you guys still with us at this point? We are almost to the end. It is time for our next WTF film, at least for me. Surge. Well, I kind of liked it. Weirdo, you would. This British film, directed by Anil Karia and starring Ben Whitshaw, is about a disenfranchised worker cutting loose and, well, going batshit crazy. <laughs> you know, it's, this is a promising premise. When I walked into this film, I thought it was going to be a comedy, quite honestly. And going batshit crazy really is the best way to sum up this film. Uh, Let me give you the background here, and you guys can decide for yourselves if this should have been a comedy or a drama. Joseph, played by Ben Wishaw, lives a very monotonous life. He works in airport security, which I know would probably just kill anybody. (laughs) And every day he deals with the public who is demanding, annoying, they're on edge, they're inconsiderate, they're they're just everything. And at home, he has an obnoxious neighbor who won't stop revving his damn motorbike's engine all night long. Like, I get it, that's the worst. And then, just the cherry on top of all this terribleness, his parents, who he can never seem to please, never miss an opportunity to take a swipe at his already demoralized emotions. Eventually, Joseph snaps, and he begins this rampage of robbing banks, having sex with a co-worker he likes, uh, while she's sick, mind you, 
and then destroys a hotel room, crashes a wedding before stealing his neighbor's bike and going on a nighttime joyride through London. So I loved it. <laughs> Why? It's it's, lit- it's watching a meek man's slow descent into madness. Ugh. It's brilliant. Ugh. This definitely has Joker vibes, and I lived for it. By that I mean it shows how society could have done better for this man, but fails time and time again. Even when it's catching him. He keeps robbing banks. They're looking for him. Like... He won't stop. He just he just doesn't stop anything that he's doing. And he just keeps hiding money or there's an ink, you know, cartridge in a bag, so he just throws that away. Like, it's clearly not about the money. It's just he's gone crazy. And this film felt very experimental. Is it perfect? Nope. Maybe a bit long? Sure. But it's a good start for Karia. It, uh, there's something about the filming where in the beginning it's this monotonous filming and then as he slowly starts to descend into madness all of a sudden this the the film starts to get kind of almost like cell phone footage where it's bouncing all around and you're kind of going into madness with him and how they film it you literally feel like you're going crazy with him. It just gets closer and closer and closer to him, and you feel like you're like, oh, yeah, stick it to the man. Like, I understand why you're going crazy. I am making faces at you and shaking my head. Yes, you are. I hate this movie so much. I got motion sickness. I had to keep <laughs> looking away. Like, okay, I get it. He's going crazy. The camera is shaking. Can you stop fucking shaking the camera for the almost the entirety of the film i'm gonna throw up like i get it put a stabilizer on that damn thing oh my gosh it was driving me absolutely nuts and i these sorts of films watching somebody descend into madness they do have a place in filmmaking i do not like them i do not like seeing somebody snap and just lose their shit to the point where they're harming others. And this is one of my biggest issues that I had with Joker. And I have the same issue with this one. Like, he got to the point, not only was he robbing banks, which is already a bad thing, but he was, like, getting into fights and beating people up and just being a jerk. I'm like, heard of therapy? Maybe if he was that bad, you know, get a Xanax or something. Like, there's so many other ways to deal with your anger. And this film was so long. I kept turning to you going, is it over? And it just kept going. Like, what was the point of him destroying that hotel room? Like, literally pulling the bed apart, pulling the springs out, and then getting into it and forcing it apart. I'm like, why are we watching this? Why is he eating glass? What is wrong with you? I just, I did not like this film at all. It was not something that I would want to watch. Maybe we shouldn't understand Look, why it's crazy. Look, I have this big issue with this thread of middle class white men losing their shit. Like, why do I have to keep seeing this story? It's always these middle class white men. And I'm just kind of like, no, what's the point of this movie? That was such a what the fuck am I watching? (laughs) Why did I waste two hours of my life? I got out of there. I was just like, thank God it's over. My brain hurts. My brain hurts even now just reminiscing on it. That camera work was driving me fucking insane. (laughs) Agree to disagree. (laughs) 
you this this I'll chalk this up. I'll put this in the horror camp with you. This is just the type of film that Kaylee does not like. Fair. <laughs> All right. Shall we move on to our last and certainly not least film? Sure. Our last film was the audience award winner for World Cinema Dramatic Competition. Cincenas Particulares, or Identifying Features, is a very contemporary Mexican film about a mother who searches for her lost son. The son ostensibly went north to the U.S. border to sneak across and find a job, but he apparently never makes it and disappears, which is very similar to many young Hispanic men. Our protagonist, Magdalena, played by Mercedes Hernandez, goes on almost a Homeric journey to find her lost boy. Along the way, she meets Miguel, played by David Alescas, who was deported. This film was directed by Fernanda Valdez, and Cincenias Particulares deals with some very weighty issues, like the, the need to find a better life. Uh, family bonds, the threat of gangs and being pressured by these horrible human beings. And then just, you know, the state bureaucracy just doing absolutely nothing for you. You know, this film was both like a mystery and a thriller, in my opinion. And this one was really like I read the synopsis, but I instantly forgot about it. And then we saw it. And then I was like, wow. I could see why this was the audience pick for best drama. And you're, you're right. It's a very contemporary feeling film. This could only be told in our time now when there are so many young people from Latin America surging up at the border trying to find a better life for themselves. And just the pacing of this film, the slow unfolding of the mystery that, that Magdalena, she's just going on almost like these tiny threads trying to find her son because the authorities say he's dead, that he was burned and found in a mass grave. And the boy he was traveling with, they found his body and they found her son's backpack with him or bag and said that that's it. And she didn't sign the death certificate, but is determined to try and figure out the truth. And the truth ends up being a lot more sinister than her son dying, which what could be worse than losing your child? Well, I don't want to spoil what happens in this film because if it does get picked up, it's totally worth seeing. But just an incredible and unique story to hear from, you know, the other side of the border. I really appreciated the Mexican view on the migrant story. Yes, because we've seen a few films in the past, even at Sundance, that were documentarians going in and infiltrating these cartels. And so we've had a lot of really awesome documentaries and, and inside scoops into this, but this was the first drama that I really loved that I think is the closest to portraying what it really is like to try and suffer through the journey to get to freedom. Right. And this was my favorite film of Sundance for multiple reasons. Uh, I think it's everything I liked about the other films, but all together. It was timely. Uh, it was timely as far as political issues. The timing through the film was beautifully done. There were slow aspects and there were quote unquote walking aspects. 
of the film, but they were so paralleled with more of the action, and it kept me thrilled. I never knew where we were going to go. Like, was she, was, were we going to find, were we going to follow Magdalena for her to just find out that the police were correct? And even though they couldn't necessarily identify features of her son, maybe her son was at that entire time always just in that pile with his friend. And I mean, it gets down to the nitty gritty of what these cartels do. I mean, you are shown tattoos and you are shown arms because that is all that you have left of your child. It's so... And it's petrifying. And what I really liked was we had two stories that paralleled each other so beautifully. We have Magdalena's son who very much knows the land. They farm. He feels one in Mexico with his family, and he chooses to cross the border. And then we have Miguel who it's been for all I know, a decade since he's been home. And he finally gets caught and deported and goes into a land that he doesn't know. He goes back to his mom's town and cars won't even drop him off in his town anymore because the political climate has changed so dramatically that when he gets dropped off miles from where his where his home and his town are, all they say is, be careful, dude. Like, this is not a cool place anymore. And... Just to see that where, you know, I've had friends who have been deported who have never even been to Mexico or lived there and trying to start a whole new world where it would be like me getting dropped off in Germany where I might have a few cousins that live there, but I don't speak German. I don't know Germany. And to see that and also see someone trying to leave that and come to a world where they don't know. I mean, just the scripting, the acting the filming i mean we really get to do see beautiful landscape of the desert as well and that there was nothing that i disliked about this film it it was beautiful and i want to point out it was not sensational in any way like this was not netflix presents narcos <laughs> oh god not even close it was just so realistic that and that's what it, it was very grounded in the truth and in the people and in the question of like if, what what would happen to your child if they up and left to go to a better life and then they just disappear? Like, you don't hear from them at all. And the government tells you they're dead. Are they? It's it's just, it's like you said, Tuesday, it's amazing. It was beautiful. And I, I really hope that this film does get picked up because it was just so, it was so nice to hear this story from the Mexican side, the Mexican point of view. And... Uh, the director, Fernanda Valadez, like I want to go and see more of her work because this is just an incredible piece of film work right here. So definitely keep your eyes out for Cincenas Particulares or Identifying Features. Oh, I think we made it to the end here, Tuesday. Ooh, that was about as tiring as going and seeing all those movies, but we made it to the end. Thanks for sticking with us for one of our longest reviews ever dun 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 <laughs> on that note it's time to drink oh finally okay we, we gotta toast it to high west uh of course obviously all right so you're drinking high west which kind uh i'm getting a double rye for me and even though that they're not our official sponsors in any way shape or form i will always pretend that we are best friends 
me and High West together forever. <laughs> what about you, Tuesday? Well, uh, on this wonderful trip, I was treated exceptionally well by Wasatch Brewery, mm. which can be found at the very tippy top of Main Street in Park City, Utah. I highly recommend not walking Main Street your first day there because it's quite the incline and it's quite the higher elevation. It's like a San Francisco kind of hill. Yeah, it's not cute. I'm not going <laughs> to lie. But I had some wonderful beers while I was up there. This is not a seasonal, but it's still one of my favorites. I am going with their apricot Hefeweizen. It has this beautiful apricot nose, tart, crisp body, and a really nice, refreshing finish. Is it wintry? Not at all, but I love it. It's probably the closest thing to Four Peaks Peach Ale that you can get in Utah. That's pretty impressive. Next time I will partake of some of that. I was stuck on my whiskey binge. I did have at our very lovely abode, courtesy of your family being so generous, um, they had some Japanese whiskey there. And I tried that for the first time because I've been hearing tell that the Japanese make a mean whiskey. And I was like, yeah, sure, buddy. Keep dreaming. And um, it, it was it was pretty tasty. Not bad for a non-Scottish scotch. And like many of the bottles of alcohol that can be found at my parents' home in Park City, we have no idea where it came from. <laughs> but it was lovely. So thank you to whoever supplied that particular bottle. We enjoyed it. Well, on that note... We're going to wrap this up. Thank you so much for sticking with us for this entire review. We hope that you get a chance to see some of these films. And you should subscribe to our channel. We have some great films coming up this spring, including Birds of Prey and Emma, in case you are into the heroines. And there's also a very scary looking film from the Saw collection called Spiral that's coming up that I know Tuesday's excited for. So excited! So if you want to hear our reviews on all of this and more, hit that subscribe button. We're on all your favorite platforms, including iTunes and Google Play. And, of course, to keep up with all the latest news, trailers, and sneak peeks, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and or Twitter. Don't forget to bookmark and visit our website, whiskeyandpopcorn.org. Thanks so much for listening. From Tuesday, I'm Kaylee. This is Whiskey and Popcorn. We'll see you at the movies.